say thank you for your prayers. We continue to need them, but we are celebrating in our family for our granddaughter, Marigold, Eloise, whom we lovingly refer to as Goldie Lee, has returned home. On Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, cardiac, uh, con con congenital heart defect day, she was released from the hospital. And uh, so she is at home, she has her NG tube, she'll probably have that for six months to a year. She's on seven medications, she still has some complications, but she is at home. And um, I know that home can become <laughs> Being at home can become isolating, uh, but at this point it's not. It's freedom compared to the hospital. <laughs> so uh, we give thanks and praise to God, and we thank you. So last Sunday, we focused on those first three verses in Jonah, chapter 4. And we, we concluded by pausing. Do you remember how in the Hebrew text, in the Hebrew practice, they would pause for reflection after verse 3. See, uh, the point, remember, where Jonah says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. He wasn't really concerned about the Ninevites. He was concerned more about his reputation as a prophet. For if his prophecy didn't come true, then, <clears throat> as one of my dear friends reminded me last week, that's why he became a minor prophet <laughs> and not one of the major prophets. But now today, we hear the question. The pause has ended, and the silence is broken with a word from the Lord. Jonah knew that his reputation as a prophet was was finished. If God showed Nineveh mercy, then what he had told them didn't carry any weight. His reputation was done. And so God begins with this question. Actually, it's three questions in our story for today. You might say it's three questions that ask the same point. And it comes from the Lord, who seems to be very active in this part of the story. Verse 4, the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? The word from the Lord. Think about that. <clears throat> First and foremost, before we even get into the content of the question, think about how God spoke to Jonah and Jonah heard him. Now you've heard me talk about the need for a relationship with Jesus, a, a, a relationship with God. And dare I say, even a personal relationship? 
But what we're talking about here is, is what Jonah had with God. God spoke to Jonah, and Jonah was supposed to speak to the people. And when he didn't, God continued to speak to Jonah. And Jonah continued to respond. This is a relationship that God and Jonah have. And it's not something that's surreal or it's not something that is extra special for just prophets. This kind of relationship is attainable for each one of you. Each of us has the ability to speak with God, to listen to God, to hear God. All you need is to pay attention to this book of Jonah. God is not only active, but God is the initiator. God is the one who begins the actions. And throughout this book, we see that. This morning, God speaks to Jonah and asks him, is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry about my response to the Ninevites, even though I told you to tell them that they're going to be destroyed? Is it right for you to be angry? Look, I've changed my mind. Jonah has a response. You know what Jonah's response is? He walks away from God. Have you ever done that? I mean, he just walks away from God. When we talk about this personal relationship, it's become, at this point, for Jonah, very personal. It's so personal that it hurts, and it hurts him so deeply that he just walks away from God. Listen to this conversation. This is not a faraway, distant God that is speaking with Jonah. This is a close and personal God that is speaking with Jonah. And Jonah responds by not talking back, not asking questions, but by walking away. In verse 5 it says, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city, the city of Nineveh, and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding on to hope. God, I'm going to give you another day to destroy this wicked city. I know you're calling it great. I call it wicked. Let's see your stuff. Fire down from heaven upon this city. Come on now. So Jonah went outside of the city on the east side and he built a booth, it says, translated that would be like a shelter. And he, the, the shelter would have had four walls, maybe some wood, maybe some cardboard, something fairly substantial to hold together, something like that. And then it would have been uh, big leafy branches on the top. So you think of like olive trees, myrtle trees, palm trees. Those are all big leafy branches, popular trees in that region. So 
so he probably used that. But w when you take a plant off of its life source, whether it's a flower or a leaf, what happens if you don't put it into water? It dies, it withers and dies. And so even though he has these leaves covering his shelter, most likely he is not very protected from the elements. And the element at this point in time in the summer of Nineveh would have been the sun. Now what this image conjures up for those of us who have studied the Bible is a Jewish holiday, a festival called Sukkot. S-U-K-K-O-T-H. And it is the festival of booths, not drinking <laughs> booths like you, you know, the phone booth, um, the shelter kind of booth. And it's a festival of, of shelters, let's say. Um, now this festival celebrates the harvest for Israel. So it happens usually in our month of October. It uh, happens on the 15th of the calendar year for the Jewish calendar, which is different than our calendar. So it's usually somewhere in the month of October. And when they celebrate this festival, it's not just a celebration of all the rich grains that they have been harvesting from the fields. For us that grew up in the Midwest, it would have been beans and uh, soybeans and corn. Maybe if you're up further north, some, some winter wheat. Uh, it had all these different crops that we would grow. They would celebrate the harvest of olives and pomegranates and um, they probably had some grapes they made their wine with. And, and so they'd gather in Jerusalem at the temple to do these celebrations. And they'd build these shelters all around the city for a place to stay because the celebration happened for seven days. It also was a celebration reminding them that they were temporary people because they were remembering, they were remembering the Exodus when Moses led them out of Egypt. But you remember how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? So it's to remember that as well. So this celebration of Sukkot is what comes to mind. And um, in Leviticus, it gives a little bit more description here uh, in chapter 23. Remember that the seven-day festival of, to the Lord, the festival of shelters, see, even they changed it from booze in the, in the Bible here, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month after you have harvested all the produce of the land. The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. Shabbat, Sabbath. On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm, fronds, bows, from leafy trees and willows that grow up in the stream. Then, Then celebrate with joy before the Lord your God for seven days. You must observe this festival to the Lord for seven days every year. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed in the appointed month from generation to generation. For seven days you must be living outside in little shelters, 
all native-born Israelites must live in shelters, this will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So Jonah goes outside of the city, the east side, and he builds a shelter. But it's not giving him enough protection. So God initiates some more action. Now, <clears throat> earlier in the story, there's a Hebrew word that is used that describes God's actions. And the Hebrew word gets translated appointed. So if you remember back when Jonah gets thrown overboard into the sea and he's probably drowning and what does it say? But it says that God appointed a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. You see, God initiated the action. Sometimes we, we think that we're doing all the work. But what God wants us to know is that God is the great initiator. God is the one who is doing the work. And we may pay attention to it and we may not. So just as a great fish was appointed by God, now a plant is appointed by God to grow up next to Jonah to provide him some shade. I mean, this is an amazing plant because it grows up within hours and provides the shade because, you know, all the other stuff is drying out, withering and dying, the stuff that Jonah's tried to cover himself with. And so now he's being covered by this beautiful plant. He has shade. Jonah was grateful, it says. Literally, it says that he rejoiced. He rejoiced with great joy. His protection was life-giving. But God is not finished yet. God acts again. Let's take a look at uh, verse 7. But God also arranged, appointed, a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. Is God trying to point something out for Jonah? I think he's trying to teach him something. Is there a lesson for you and me here? But God is still not finished. You see, God not only appoints the worm, but as I read in that verse, following verse 7, that God also appoints a hot, dry, easterly wind. Now, how many of you think God has a sense of humor? Some of you are kind of like stoic, you know, like, oh, no, God will never have a sense of humor. We... I think God has a sense of humor. Which side of the city did Jonah decide to go sit on? The east side. So, so the city is to, um, to the west of him. He is sitting on the east side of the city. And what kind of a wind does God send? Is it a westerly? No. I mean, westerly would be nice because the city would block the wind, right? Even a northerly or southerly wind would at least be partially blocked. What kind of wind does God send? An easterly wind. 
it's a hot, dry wind. Just as the worm attacked the plant, so now the east wind attacks Jonah's head. And some of us can relate. Jonah went out to the east side of the city, so God made it an easterly wind. I think if he would have gone out to the west side of the city, God would have made it a westerly wind. God wanted to get Jonah's attention. And Jonah has not moved beyond his wish to die. Because his prophecy won't bat a hundred. Or is it a thousand? Baseball people help me. Thousand. God asked Jonah in his anger. God asked Jonah if his anger is justifiable. And Jonah says, basically, yes, it is not justifiable only, but it is justifiable enough for me to want to die. That's what God is hearing from his dear friend Jonah. See, the story is a way for us to remember who God truly is, even when it disrupts our understanding of the world. The story ends as it begins with a, with a word from the Lord God. 39 Hebrew words exactly. Which is interesting because at the beginning of this chapter, Jonah has his most lengthy uh, prayer, speech, not really a prayer, probably more of a speech, that he speaks to God. And guess how many Hebrew words that is? 39. Symmetry. So God sees this relationship as a relationship of give and take. 39 words here from Jonah, 39 words here from God. If the book would have gone on, I think we would have had a couple more speeches with 39 words each. This is what Jonah said in the beginning of his 39 words. This is when he complained to the Lord. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. That complaint sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? So, uh, so Jonah's speech is that God's 39-word speech at the end of this book goes like this in verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said to Jonah, you feel sorry for the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? 
Literally, it says, And should I not be moved with tears of compassion for Nineveh, that great city? gets translated out, but really what it's talking about is that God has so much compassion for this city of Nineveh, this non-Israelite city. God has so much love for it that he is moved with tears. God is willing and able to cry over this city. Much like Jesus was moved to tears over another great city, Jerusalem. In Luke 19, we are reminded, but as he came closer to Jerusalem, towards the end of his ministry, and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And that city is utterly destroyed within 30-some years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The people of Nineveh are described as helpless, literally not knowing their right from their left. They're without help. And it is for this great city that God laments and weeps and cares about. So what is God trying to teach us through this book of Jonah? Nineveh is a teeming metropolis far from Jerusalem and filled with helpless people and animals. Don't forget the animals because they're in there as well. God has as much concern for animals as he does the people. So you dog lovers and cat lovers, you're in good company here with God. Shouldn't God be concerned about all these people and these animals? The scriptures highlight for us God's love and concern for God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. I mean, when you read through the Bible, it's really mostly about God's love for the people of God. The Hebrews, Israelites, the church. But what about this story of Jonah? What does it tell us about God's love? What does this show us about a special concern for the outsiders, the people of the world, and even livestock. And shouldn't I be concerned about Nineveh, that great city? God is loving and gracious and merciful. But are we sometimes like the older brother 
in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son story? He asks his father for his half of the inheritance. He leaves, squanders it all, and he comes back home repentant, not expecting to be forgiven fully, but he is generously accepted, welcomed, loved, forgiven by his father. Meanwhile, the older brother has been working in the fields and he hears all the noise and he goes to find out what's going on and he sees the celebration happening. Do we sometimes resent God's love when it is shared with others, which seems more generously when God shares it with us? I think that is God's question for us today. Can we celebrate God's love for all people? Or do we want to keep it in boundaries? Cannot God choose whom to be loving, forgiving, and caring without our permission? That's the question I'm going to leave you with. And that's the question that I want to pray about. Will you join me? Gracious Lord God, forgive me. Forgive us. Be compassionate and loving and caring. All that you want. And draw us to follow you with that compassion and that love and that care. Even towards our enemies. Those who are different from us. Including our next door neighbors. Lord, we pray that you would change us. As you change that great city of Nineveh. Lord, we pray that you would change us as you changed the prodigal son. Help us not to be the grumpy older brother. Amen.